Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. Nighttime is when the hidden creatures emerge from their dens and their burrows. The badger, the desert kit fox, the kangaroo rat, the mountain lion, the scorpion, out they come into the cool, dark night. A cooler, dark night, anyway. I still sort of scratch my head in wonder. me to live amongst the humans when I hear one of them say something like well isn't the desert just a bunch of sand desolate wasteland I hardly hear anybody say that anymore because the one good thing that has come from Mark Zoron, the interdimensional hell virus Zuckerberg, is that because his evil company bought a little phone app called Instagram? Lots of people today know that the desert is a wild and beautiful place. Some of it, anyways. The parts that don't have a hundred mile square of tract homes and Walmarts dumped atop it. When you look out on the desert, even on a hot, miserable early September day when it's 110 degrees and even the birds seem tired of it, well, consider the ground. Ask the dust. Look on the ground and you will see footprints or snake prints. In the case of snakes, are the long lines of lizard tail tracks through the sand. Bobcat prints, the dainty little prints of innumerable desert rodents and insects. The tracks of the roadrunner, the gambles quail. Maybe even some weird tracks. Like we see out here now and then from time to time. Three-toed alligator looking tracks that go on for maybe 10 yards and just stop. Like it materialized for a quick sprint and then immediately dematerialized. Mat and demat. That's the jargon my ancestor Mead Lane came up with nearly a century ago during his 
research and travels across California, Arizona, and beyond. Mead Lane, same weird spelling, was a researcher who came up with the theory of UFOs and other 14 oddities that would inspire Dr. Jacques Vallee and the author John Keel to reach their own very similar conclusions about the monsters and fireballs and goblins and angels and gods that have haunted us since our first days, our early days as humans and proto-humans. is when the thing materializes from the electromagnetic spectrum, perhaps. Maybe from another dimension, sure. But there is plenty of evidence to suggest it all happens on the electromagnetic spectrum. Spectrum is an interesting word. And in a few years, when the cable company changes its name again, because cable and phone companies change their names every few years in a desperate bid to make their customers forget who they are, we will perhaps begin using the word the way the ancient Romans did. The way scientists still do. The way the ghost hunters still do when they say specter. In Latin, spectrum and specter are variations of the same word. Some say spectrum came first, meaning simply the spectrum of visible light as seen in a rainbow or through a crystal. Spectre, an apparition, was something that appeared to move into our visible light spectrum. Coming in at the ultraviolet level, purple, perhaps taking brief physical form through manipulation of plasma and matter, Perhaps an intelligently arranged stack of particles illuminated by light, that curious blend of particle and wave. What you know by now is to be seen, to be noticed, to maybe run through a classic routine with the human percipients such as a a landing of a craft or a brilliantly lit up fairy house with walls of glass as the Celtic people so often see in nature or a big hairy monster with glowing red or blue eyes stomping around a forest campground late at night. Or an angel appearing at your bedside to tell you old Uncle Joe had a stroke and is going to heaven to be with Mother Mary and his siblings 
Well, after the mission, the Spectre demats. It dematerializes. It is one of the strange little synchronicities of this field of study that once I became convinced by the works of Dr. Valley and John Keel regarding the probable origins of so many of our visions and apparitions from the super spectrum. That in their own books, I would be introduced to the person who introduced them to the concept, who turned out to be my ancestor, Mead Lane. Who, like me, came west to California, and then he set up his Borderland Sciences research group within a few minutes' walk of the last place that I called home in San Diego, in a little cottage. Back in the 1990s, just off Adams Avenue. It was not until recently that I found out Mead Lane was in fact my third cousin, thrice removed, as they say, from the lanes of Floyd County, Eastern Kentucky, by way of Amherst, Virginia, on the old Frontier Road. You know, when I discovered this, it gave me a weird feeling. Like when I discovered that Edgar Case, the great seer and psychic and clairvoyant and channeler, discovered his line of work through another one of those weird hillbilly lanes from Floyd County, Eastern Kentucky. Edgar Case was a strange child with a sweet disposition. He was often said to keep company with his invisible friends, the little folk, as they were called, in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, which would later become known around the world as the location of a farmhouse where little goblins terrorized a family all night long back in August of 1955. It seemed like whenever Edgar Case would try to do the normal thing, get a normal job, he would be struck down by something and spend months in bed recovering. So it was in the year 1900 that his attempts to be a respectable insurance salesman ended back in bed, living for a year with his parents again, utterly unable to speak. A complete loss of speech. A local hypnotist and disciple of Frank Mesmer not only cured case of his speech loss, he also opened up a channel between Edgar and a vast living intelligence that John Keel would later call the super spectrum that Philip K. Dick would call Vallis. 
An Edgar Case would go on to global fame as a Christian mystic and miraculous healer, the Sleeping Prophet, as he was known, because when the hypnotist put Case into this state, he would go limp. Asleep but for his voice, which was now strong and true. The hypnotist was Al Lane, Albert C. Lane, again with the odd spelling. From this Eastern Kentucky clan, people who made no mark on the world except in these esoteric fields of study. It was Dr. Al Lane who created the term readings for his sessions with Edgar Case. So today we call them psychic readings, tarot card readings, oracular readings. Some people thought he might have been running the whole show. But as Edgar got his voice back and was soon busy healing the people of Hopkinsville, it was decided that the Christian God must have blessed these strange sessions. These are the deeply weird wires that connect us to a vast realm. Much like when light behaves as waves or particles depending on what we're measuring. You will find the whole history of this strange and haunted planet contains innumerable links between you and exactly what you're looking to find. I learned this as a newspaper reporter decades ago. When something bizarre happens, start looking around and you'll find a lot of connections between the players. Now, I'm not talking about UFOs or Bigfoot. I'm talking about crimes, riots, Fires, things that make a mark on the world. Some kind of weird thing that triggers a series of events. Sometimes these can be explained partially by proximity. Although never completely. So the cop who murdered George Floyd on a public street while people for some reason did not rain bricks and cans of soup on these evildoers, that cop not only knew George Floyd personally, but he knew him as a co-worker. They worked together. Because George Floyd's murderer was white, he went from Walmart and fast food to the police department to be a murderer for hire. And you know what happened to George Floyd. But you also know that what happened on that street is reverberating right now, this minute, around the world. as George Floyd's little six-year-old daughter said right there for the news cameras to broadcast by satellite to every corner of this planet, my daddy changed the world.
When I was a kid, you could buy a novelty penny with a little engraving of JFK next to Lincoln's head. The penny was real and altered, which is a crime, but whatever. Crime is our business here in America, top down. And the penny was glued to a cardboard bookmark with a list of coincidences regarding Kennedy and Lincoln's lives and violent deaths. Both were sacrificed by the evil that lives at the heart of this country, human sacrifices. Great bloody rituals performed for public consumption. Lincoln murdered by a lone nut in a theater filled with an audience of Washington insiders. Kennedy murdered for the press and the cameras to be seen by a horrified world. Kennedy's lone nut was Lee Harvey Oswald. Someone who renounced his citizenship, moved to the Soviet Union, and somehow came right back to the USA with no questions asked, where he immediately shows up in the news doing strange things, like advocating a fair deal with Cuba, he did this outside the International Trademark Office building in New Orleans, where he handed my mother a hands-off Cuba flyer when she was returning from lunch to work in Clay Shaw's building. The International Trademark, the corner of Camp and Common Streets. It was on the TV news at night. The, the strange performance. Who really killed John Kennedy? We will always wonder because the heart of America is troubled and diseased and the papers continue to be locked away. Oh, just for another 20 years and maybe another 20 years after that forever. Some say the godfather of New Orleans, Carlos Marcello, ordered the hit on both Kennedys after they teamed up to break up his syndicate. You know in the Godfather movies when the mafioso takes the fifth and the hearing a hundred times and everybody's going crazy because he's getting away with it? That was Carlos Marcello in real life. I wish I'd known more about this stuff when his grandson sat next to me in third grade at a rundown Lutheran school in New Orleans East of all places. Because it turns out the family was hiding the kids from the hitmen from the other families who were not even allowed to visit New Orleans without the Godfather's permission. Our Savior Lutheran. Well, I guess it worked for Marcello's grandson, who is still alive, rumors say. You can't even find out the kids' names on the internet, so I will not mention his on the radio. My third grade history project was a photo album full of clippings from JFK's assassination in the aftermath. My mother kept them all. 
I wonder what Marcello's grandson thought about all that. Clay Shaw, who was later prosecuted unsuccessfully by New Orleans DA Jim Garrison for Shaw's alleged and likely role in the assassination conspiracy, was the kind of character you'd expect to be involved in a lot of weird stuff, but it's always weirder than you think. Clay Shaw reportedly wound up in possession of metal wreckage from a supposed flying saucer that nearly crashed into the waters off Maury Island between Tacoma and Seattle. There was a group of a half dozen saucers, one wobbling in the center with strange materials falling off. Some of this slag supposedly struck the small workboat piloted by a couple of harbor patrolmen, injuring one, or the son of one in one telling, who was riding along, and killing their dog. White lava, white metal, something like that. June 21st, 1947. This was four days before what we call the beginning of the Flying Saucer era, June 24th of that same strange year, when pilot Kenneth Arnold witnessed nine strange craft, one shaped like a silver bat-winged boomerang over the mountains outside Seattle. So Ray Palmer, the pulp magazine editor, had already hired Kenneth Arnold to write a first-person version of his historic UFO encounter that was on the front pages nationwide in the days after it happened. When Palmer heard from one of the men who supposedly witnessed the Maury Island incident, he asked Kenneth Arnold to investigate. Arnold, in the weeks after his original sighting, had already racked up another three sightings. Because, as you learn, you don't just have one close encounter. Maybe you only remember one close encounter. When Kenneth Arnold arrived, he interviewed the two men, Fred Chrisman and Harold Dahl. He collected the samples of the stuff and quickly called Army Air Force Intelligence Officer Lieutenant Frank M. Brown, someone he just happened to know. Lieutenant Brown rushed a couple of intelligence officers from California to the scene by way of a B-25 from the old Hamilton Army Airfield in Marin County. Well, the story says they were unimpressed with the samples, although it's hard to know where that story came from, as both officers died on the flight back when the B-25 burst into flames and crashed. If the name Fred Grisman sounds familiar, it's because this same shady character, who wasn't really a harbor policeman on Maury Island at all, would later be identified as one of the three tramps on the grassy knoll on November 22, 1963, standing just behind the crowd waiting to see President John F. Kennedy's motorcade come by that day in Dallas. Chrisman, according to the major threads of JFK conspiracy theory, shot JFK, or helped, for Carlos Marcello and or the CIA. 
I wonder if George Bush Sr. ever talked about that, maybe on his deathbed two years ago, because he was there too on CIA business. Even though he was supposedly a small town oilman in West Texas in those days, details of Bush Sr.'s CIA work in the 1960s were published by The Nation magazine in 1988, the year the Skull and Bones man and by then former CIA director was elected President of the United States. What did Clay Shaw do with the UFO slag from the Maury Island hoax? As Isaacs and across the great Mojave wilderness. You've been listening to Desert Oracle Radio, and I am your host, Ken Lane. The soundscapes you heard right up until this point were all by our own red, blue, black, silver. I gotta say that because I say the credits during the closing theme music, which is the only music on this show you will generally hear that is not by red, blue, black, silver. I did a little remote viewing experiment with some of you last week. Thanks for sending your descriptions and sketches. One I got said, on your table, it's a binding of desert oracles. My wife says it's an armadillo. Got a lot like that. Very funny. Very funny, people. Two different people, apparently of no relation, wrote in to say that they saw a cartoon character figure, with one saying it was Snoopy, the cartoon dog. One listener sent in a sketch of something like a vine or a curious ladder. I'll post the picture tonight. Sorry I haven't got around to it this week. But it's a little tripod made of metal, the kind you put on a table for a camera or an audio recorder with a little nubbin you screw into the device. Very simple, clean line, so I thought that might make an impression. We'll try again. Trying is how you learn. That's what they say in the Zoom meetings we have instead of school now. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, whether on the radio at KCDZ in the Joshua Tree High Desert, Friday nights, 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Or maybe you're listening on the new Lookout FM in Los Angeles and Burbank. That's some good news. Whatever the case, we appreciate it, and we will be back with you next week. Watch out for this heat wave and everything else, and good night from the voice of the desert. (laughs) 